All right, so we're here with Trevor Stutzman, a co-host on today's episode of Dane's Platform. I want to give a little special shout out to uh, two of our sponsors. We got the Acceleration Diet. I'm still hovering around 234, 235, and hopefully I can drop down under 230 here before throwing season starts indoors. So I'm a little less thrower-like. Um, and then special thanks as well to Earth-Fed Muscle. In about two weeks, they're going to be releasing there. Uh, protein pancakes, so I'm pretty excited for for us to have that at my house all the time and just crushing pancakes all day, every day, which might stop my goal of getting under 2.30. But anyway, Trevor, how's it going? How's your day going, and are you ready for this podcast? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, so Trevor's going to ask some questions, and I'm going to hopefully provide some insightful responses to his questions and then he's going to add in some discussion as well based off of his experience uh working at the university of toledo as a throws coach and now again here back at garage strength as a as a throws coach for for us with our high school athletes and then helping me as well with our post post collegiate athletes so without further ado let's get rolling all right so i kind of made these questions um, primarily for some, for any throws coach who is new to the sport, um, maybe getting their first coaching job or coaching maybe a jumps coach who is looking to take over the throws and they haven't really had much experience with it yet. I wanted these questions to be um, oriented towards that person and just getting a basic understanding of how to run practices what, and all the tools that they need to become a throws coach. Um, so the first question would be, uh, Dane, how do you structure your practices? Um, and say for a collegiate coach or a high school coach that might only have one to two hours with their athletes, what are the priorities um, when it comes to structuring practices? Okay, so how would I structure? I'll, I'll go over the high school part first, which I always have sort of I mean, I've, I've thought of this for quite a while. I, I mean, even going back to when Jason Kuhn and Evan Arnott and Morgan Shigo were training with me in high school, I've always sort of, you know, analyzed the the high school side pretty pretty hard and, and tried to see what, what is valuable um, and how they could use that time efficiently. And I think just to throw things into perspective is that people sort of act like two hours isn't isn't that much time, but it is for a thrower. Um, so let's say that, you know, for a high school coach that throwing starts or tr you know, track practice starts at 2.45 or 3 o'clock. Let's say it starts at 3 o'clock, and then you got to do your 10-minute, 15-minute warm-up with the, with the whole team. So now we're sitting there, it's at 3.15. Uh, what I would do is I would sit there and analyze everybody's priorities and analyze everybody's top events so um you know shot disc in most cases occasionally in some states shot discus and jab <clears throat> and i would go um at least three days a week where they <clears throat> where they really focus on 45 minutes to an hour of hard throwing in their in their priority events so if you have a discus thrower he throws for 45 minutes to an hour straight and I think it's imperative at this point that you inform everyone that's on your team that this isn't a time to goof off because I think that that's 
one of the biggest struggles with, with high school coaches is that they, it's more like a participation type sport and less like a competitive sport. And I think that that's, I don't think that that's good for track and field in general, because then people sort of get this mindset that they can just go out for track and goof off. So, and that can end up hurting those of us that want to be elite throwers. So 45 minutes to an hour, uh, focusing on the priority event. And then I would immediately head inside and, and start lifting and, and set up a program where let's say you got 15 to 20 throwers, um, set up like three types of lifts and like, like minded or like event, or I guess people in the same events could train together. Um, and then in between their rest periods, so let's say they go, let's say they do a priority lift where they do a snatch and then they do a priority strength movement where they do a front squat. In between their front squat while they're resting or their back squats or whatever, they could be doing drills for their secondary event. And then they do an accessory movement and during that accessory movement, they would do a special strength exercise like rotational ab strength or um core strength based around their, again, their secondary or primary movement, depending on where their weaknesses are and where they struggle structurally. Um, and I, I think I would, I would set it up pretty similar, similarly on the collegiate level. I think you could get a little bit more throws in and I think you could focus a little bit more on uh, technical analysis with video um, cause you're going to have a little bit more mature athletes that are going to be a little bit more focused, but I also think that you could set up the lifts very similar, similarly where you could, um, you know, push explosive strength development and then focus on general strength and then focus on accessory slash special strength movement at the end of the workout. And I would even set it up with both these levels where they, where you try and hold them accountable and they, and they record everything that they're doing in training and they're recording uh, their efforts and what they threw, how far they threw, what their goals were for the day, what their technical goals were for the day and, and what they accomplished on that day at the end of the workout. Cause that can, that can lead to a little bit more accountability on the athlete's part. So, um, so when it comes to prioritizing the things that you do, like say, I know sometimes in, in high school or I've ran into this in college too, that say there could be some team event at like 4.30 and you start practice at like 3.30, you know, say, say you have 45 minutes. What is it that you should do that day? Throw. That's the, the most, the biggest priority. Yeah. As far as throwing is concerned, I think you just throw. I think you just go, go to the circle and I think what's, what's hard with stuff like that where you do have the raw rock. I, I think it's rah-rah bullshit. Um, I, I think with stuff like the rah-rah get-together and be a team unity type aspect, I think with that, it's it, it it's such a distraction that, I mean, I always thought it was a distraction when I was competing myself, that I, I think that those days you especially just focus on technical as, the technical aspect a little lower intensity throws and you just try and get reps in and, and try and hit better positions. And, and again, like to make that 45 minutes to an hour, the most productive that you can as a coach, you've got to communicate, you know, okay, these one or two cues is what we want to focus on every single throw. 
and then after every single throw, you you go over, okay, hey, you did this, so to get back to that cue that we want to harp on and focus on, we got to do X, Y, or Z. You know, so I think that even even in a case where you might only have forty five minutes to an hour, you still have the ability to get significant work done as long as it's goal driven and you know from a analytical perspective it's it's still possible to be productive in that short of a time frame um so in a general throwing session um now this could differ from high school to college but um how many throws would you say per session each athlete should get in so in high school i actually I actually think sometimes in high school you can get a little bit more throwing in. Um, I could be wrong, but I've always felt that because there's less, you know, when you're in high school, you're not as emotionally focused on each throw. You're not as critical of yourself. Um, you're really just oftentimes a high school throwers are just going in and moving. They're not really thinking about what they're doing um, until they're juniors or seniors. So at that point, if you look at it from that perspective, they can get a little bit more throws in. Plus, the, the implement is lighter, and even though they're a little bit weaker, it's the implements, are, they're relatively light. Um, and I think that a high school thrower could, could get 30 to 40 throws in the shot and then go take 15 to 20 throws in the discus, and they'd be perfectly fine. Um, I just think, again, that you've got to be communicating with them about their goals and then how what they're doing when they get home and what they're eating and, and being on them to make sure they're getting enough protein and, and that they're eating well, they're getting enough sleep and all that. But I think 30 to 40 throws in the shot and then 15 to 20 throws in the discus in one day is, is very reasonable for a high school kid to, to do. Um, now on the collegiate level, it might be a little bit different. I think it's important to have a, a glove, to throw with a glove if, you, if you're throwing the heavy shot. Um, I think it's important if for both women and men to, to use a glove. But I think, you know, at the collegiate level, maybe 20 to 30 throws in the shot, and then, again, 15 to 20 throws in the discus. Uh, I think those are, are reasonable goals. But I, I do – I still think that there needs to be a priority event for most athletes. Um, I think it's a little bit different when you got somebody like uh, Philippe at – at UVA, uh, or like when Ryan Whiting was in college, somebody like that who who is so good at both events, it's hard to prioritize. But I, and they still should throw both implements at least at least once or twice a week. They should throw both implements in the same day. Um, but I still think there's got to be like days where at the college level where you just go out and you say, okay, I want, you know. 10 to 15 throws where we're focusing on on the on just really good technical movements, saving a couple throws to feel good, and then we're gonna try and smash it. And on those days, you know, the the volume might be a little bit lower. Um, but again, it's it's still you're still gonna be in that 20 to 30 rep range for the shot. And then if it's the same day, 15 to 20 throws in the discus. If if you're just throwing discus by itself. You know, 25 to 35 throws in the discus is very reasonable, especially if you've got multiple discs that you can throw and you don't have to walk as much. You know, like Nick Aranius uh, has talked about this where, you know, he's 30, 36 years old. He's got four kids and he's got 
some days he can take a rack out of 35 discs and he can take 35 throws in a matter of, you know, 30 to 40 minutes. And that's, that's very reasonable to do. I think and and at certain universities, they're capable of doing that. So I think it does vary, but for the most part, I think that getting 20 to 30 throws in a shot and then 20 to 30 throws in a discus on a regular basis is, is not unreasonable at all. Um, so like take a, I know some high school programs have like, <coughs> they could have, there probably aren't a whole lot in this area of Pennsylvania, but there, I know there's some in like Ohio that have like 20 to 30 kids and they might only, they might only have one or two circles. Like, are there, that's tough. Yeah. Like, I know that's tough. Like, can you, I just kind of, you know, thinking off my head, like throwing special strength exercise in there in between yeah, the that's, drills. That's what I would, that's where I would sit there and say, and this might sound horrible, but I would say, take your top, let's say you take the top 10 kids and you put them in the circle first. Let's say you got one shot circle, you got one discus circle. You take the top 10 kids in the shot, they throw the shot first. Top 10 kids in the discus, after those top 10 guys in the shot, or women, they throw the, the discus. And then in the middle, you got kids uh, doing half turns with dumbbells or doing um, dumbbell shuffle and throws or side med ball throws for, for distance. And I think that that's where, if you factor that in, where they could go, you know, the, the, the special strength group is doing, you know, let's say they do 50 to 60 reps of dumbbell throws and then – at, at like 15 to 20 pounds and then half of that group goes to the discus and half goes to the shot and then you take the a half of the discus group that the lower the lower half and then the lower half of the shot group and then they go back to the special strength uh movements i think that that's how i would set it up is is two to three groups where they're focusing on one event here one event there special strength in the middle um and what's funny is that that's probably the fastest way to get those kids, the lower level kids, to take it seriously where you, you, you sort of tell them like, look, like this is what we're going to do. And the other thing is, is like it, it makes it a unique experience where they're outside and they're going, dude, we're throwing dumbbells. Like what are you doing at track practice? Oh, we're outside throwing 20 pound dumbbells and like it's crazy. We're just throwing it in the mud and, and we're getting super strong and, and – you know, have them do dumbbell throws, superset with clap push-ups, and by the end of track season, these kids' bench presses are going to go up 50 pounds, and, and you can sit there and tell these kids, you know, to invest in track to better themselves for other other sports like wrestling or football or, or I guess people do still play basketball, sadly, maybe basketball, but makes them more explosive for basketball. <laughs> but but uh, um, if you can get that buy-in, from all the kids and they're all occupied and you teach them what the buy-in could be for the guys that are like the fringe guys that they're just there to goof around. But you, then you show them that their bench press will go up and then they'll get big muscles and the girls might like them more. They'll be better at football or whatever. If you can communicate that buy-in to them and, and keep them occupied. So they're still being productive at practice. I think that that's a pretty good way to manage that, that taking that negative situation and still making it positive. I think that's like when I trained with you in high school, I think that was always one of the coolest things I used to go around and brag. Like, yeah, Dane sent us out and had yeah. us throw rocks in the snow. Yeah. He'd be like, yeah, go out and take like 20 or 30 23, throws. Yeah. Me and Evan Hayes would be <laughs> going yeah. back and forth and stuff. Like I thought that, I mean, that 
Yeah, uh, it's just think you just think you're tough, like doing. Yeah, stuff. yeah, exactly. And, and I think cool. And it and it takes you know we used to have that shirt that said we throw rocks for fun, and yeah. I think that I think that makes you it does it does give you an edge. You know, you're outside, and I re, I still remember seeing you and Evan walk. You know, and I was up in the gym, and it's pouring down, freezing You'd be rain. Watching from the window. Yeah, I'd be yelling from the window like. <laughs> Trevor, you got to do this. But at the same time, like, you guys are out there in the pouring rain. It's freezing out, and you're throwing rocks. And then you get into a meet, and you're going, well, you know, it's cold out. It's rainy. But it doesn't matter. I, I, I throw rocks in the rain. I throw rocks in the snow. It doesn't matter. I'll, I'm going to be okay. I throw dumbbells in the snow. Like, I'll be fine. I can handle this, and I'm going to compete better. I'm tougher than these guys. And and that that work ethic and that grit, I know it's it's not very measurable. Grit isn't not you know it's not a very measurable term, but it's it's something that does go a long way as far as being productive. Yeah, I think that's absolutely like one of the things like you instilled in us from the beginning is like you get into a meet like that, and even if it really didn't make a difference, I knew for sure there's like I know no one else trained in like yeah. the pouring rain, uh -huh. and like. I was just, it was just confidence that like, I knew I could still perform there. I think, you know, even Peyton said, you know, Peyton, when she won a state title last year, it was raining and, and dude, going into that year, she was like deathly afraid of the rain and she still is a little bit, but we would throw in the rain all the time. And I think, you know, when she went to state, she hits a PR in the rain and, and that's a big step, mental step forward is saying like that you can have that confidence. So mm -hmm. But it goes a long way with having even just these other kids to have a buy-in. Because here's the thing, and, and and this is a this is something that happens is that the kids that are the fringe kids, either you don't want them there because they're goofing off, or you do want them there because you see potential, but they haven't seen that they haven't recognized yet. So when you throw in stuff like, all right, we're gonna go outside. It's really windy. It's cold. It's rainy, and we're throwing rocks. Or this, the group that's not as good as throwing rocks, while the other groups are throwing the discs. What ends up happening is, the kids who don't really want to be there will end up quitting, um, which is fine, and that's not that bad. I mean, it, it sucks that you lose some athletes that way. That you could lose some athletes that way. But what it does do is it it, it raises the the productivity of the group and it raises the intensity of the group because you lose that dead weight and that's something where everybody sort of sits there and they're like okay let's take this a little bit more seriously and I think that's what that's what I see with even collegiate throws coaches they're so soft about everything and they're so soft about at meets they're all giggly when someone has a bad throw oh well you just did this it's okay and it's like no I, you need to be a little bit more intense and you need to bring that intensity to training because that goes a long way for, you know, your athletes and how your athletes view you as a coach. And then, and then they start holding themselves more accountable and they take the sport more seriously. And then, and then the group takes the sport more seriously. And then it just sort of snowballs from there. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the negative things about, you know, a top or notch, like, Division One programs is they have all these amazing facilities and mm -hmm. you don't really have, you know, there's no need to actually throw outside in bad weather and actually, right. you know, making a view that I know your athletes will probably gripe and, you know, everything about it. But, um, so you mentioned a little bit before about like drills and, you know, possibly with high schoolers, uh, there's a place for that. Um, I know lots of new coaches are always looking for like drills. Is that something you put weight on? Um, or are there some drills that can be helpful or what's your view on that? I, I think, 
I think body weight drills in the beginning are valuable for about a month um, just to sort of teach them a movement. But at the same time, when they're starting to do it, I think those body weight drills need to be done at, from a full throw there because you're, you know, to optimize your distance, you need to be doing things from a full throw. Um, you know, when I see these kids and it's the end of track season outdoors and they're, they're still taking standing throws, like that's embarrassing. That's, that's just a sign of poor coaching. Um, <clears throat> I think that, I think for, for drills in general, the best application is to do two to four body weight drills or two to four partial drills and then take a full throw because that's going to have a little bit better imprint on the athlete. And then on top of that, the athlete's going to be doing, going to be doing two different movements at once. And when you're doing two different movements at once, you've got to be a little bit more attentive and you got to be a little bit more focused on the task at hand. So if, if you are a little more attentive, you're going to learn a little bit better and your body's going to remember it's going to have a stronger imprint from the from the myelin sheathing. So it's sort of I, – I, I like drills to an extent. And, I mean, I still even use them with, with our post-collegiate throwers. I mean, we're generally using weighted drills. And, and I think for the most part, even our high school kids, Trevor, that you work with, I think, are doing drills to an extent, but they're still throwing the shot. So they may not look like the classic drill, but they're doing a drill and they're throwing. And I think that that's the – that's a much better carryover than just you know spinning with a PVC pipe on your back where, where there's not much of a feeling and and it all comes back to, you know the carryover. What's the transfer and 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 do they feel what you want them to feel in the throw? And that's the thing you know I, I can equate it to weightlifting is that, we use a lot of variations in Olympic weightlifting, but the variations as long as you communicate what the carryover and the transfer needs to be of each variation. And, and the feeling that you're trying to get them to, to have and how it can carry over to the competitive movement, as long as you can communicate that, that's, that's really important to, to drills being effective. And that's the part where I think a lot of coaches struggle is they don't know what specific drills are going to do for their, their, for their athletes because they may not have feeling. Even when they do the drills themselves, there's no feeling. And, I, and that brings me back to uh, Dr. B's famous quote to me was uh, – I think he said, he said, uh, drills, drills, uh, like unweighted drills are like kissing a girl through a glass window. There's no feeling. <laughs> and, um, and it's true. So that's where I think having weighted implements, uh, in your hand or in your neck or having a bar on your back, I think that there's a place in that, especially when you're starting to learn the technique, but there also needs to be a place that they still have to you know, they still have to accelerate and implement through the finish because that's the other thing is that if they're doing a full spin and then they don't throw something or don't, they don't accelerate through the finish, it's still a different feeling than if they're doing a full spin and stopping because um, it's just – it's different mechanics. So I think they're – I think they can be a very effective tool. It's just, you know, how are you using them and how are you communicating to the athlete that they are effective? I think one, one good thing you kind of showed me is that <clears throat> – a way of executing it is say so it's a thrower's time in the circle they take like one or two drills and then they immediately take a throw mm -hmm. so the drill is always connected to the full throw yeah. that way yeah i think that that's i mean that's because i'm really smart right well of course. <laughs> <laughs> um so the next question would be on like a throwing inventory 
Um, I know I've gone into multiple this is a good question universities yeah. and I've gone in there all they have is competition weighted implements right now I know a lot of programs have a pretty limited budget and obviously you need um, competition weight implements to, to be able to throw right. but you know say you have enough for let's say first first off you have enough to buy you know maybe four to six implements like what are those? What are the first priority? Let's say I have a thousand bucks. Think, okay. You think I can have a thousand bucks? Uh, two hundred. Two hundred. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Shit. We're uh, talking like. <laughs> okay. So. <D3. laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so if I had two hundred bucks, I'd go to BS Athletics and I would buy all the turned iron shots from there because they're cheap. They're like twenty, thirty bucks. So, let's say we get two competitive implements in the sh in shot for men and women, and then you get one really good discus for men and women and that probably puts us because the discs are so expensive that probably puts us i mean you could go to on track and field and you could get a training disc that you could compete with for like 50 bucks so let's say it's 100 bucks for the disc well, let's let's say that we already have the competitive implements oh okay okay yeah, so yeah, just yeah. 200 bucks i would still go to vs and um i would buy all outdoor stuff because if if you are that limited on your budget that means your indoor facility is probably garbage so it's better to just train outside most of the time um, <clears throat> I think if you could if you're on the men's side collegiately you you get a you get a 20 pounder I'm trying to decide if I want a 6k or a 14 I'd probably say get a 20-pounder and then a, a 6K. So you'd have the 6K, the 16, and the 20. And that would, if you had the 20-pounder and the, the 6K, that would probably put you around like 70 bucks. And then for the women, you'd get a 5K and a 3K. And then that would probably put you around another, uh, around 140 bucks. So you have like 60 bucks left. Um, so then I would end up buying a two five discus and that would probably put me over my limit right there that's the problem <laughs> with the discus is it's so expensive yeah. and that's that's where having like bars I think um i think i think it's actually vs athletics has like discuses you can get for like 40 bucks okay so if that was the case and i would get two fives for the men and i would get i'd get a one two five or a one five i'd probably get a one five for the women so that the men could cross over and use that one five and then the women throw the 1K and the 1.5 in training. And that's that would probably be where I'd be limited is the, the 3, the 4, and the 5 on the women's side. And then the 1 and the 1.5 on the women's side. And then on the men's side, a 6K, a 20, and a 16. And then you got a 2.5, a 2K, and they can train with the 1.5. And I bet you some of those kids still have their high school discs, the 1.6s, so they can still train with the 1.6s. And I think that that and that's enough to make you good. That's enough to make you elite. That's enough to get to get work done. And that's that's all you need. You don't need to do. You don't need to spend a ton of money on on all this stuff. I mean, I say that, and I have that rack downstairs that probably has ten thousand dollars worth of crap. But I think that would be my answer. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so like when I when I went to Toledo for um, the first time, like they had maybe a 10 pound shot and that was the only other weighted implements they had so like my first like kind of how i did it is i i was first like i want i don't want to be limited with what implements they can throw so i got like kind of one of each 
and it sucked the first year because, like... People have to share. Yeah, they'd have to share. Yeah. You know, they couldn't throw three or four distances at a time and go get them. Right. Um, but then, like, I was like, all right, well, I still want them to be able to throw the weights that I want them to. And then the next year, I basically got just, like, duplicates of all of them. Right. And then it was so much nicer. Like, you know, just taking your kind of maybe over a couple year span trying to plan out, like, what implements you want to get in yeah. your budget. No, I think that's a really productive way to go about it, for sure. <clears throat> um, all right, so when it comes to lifting, what would you say are the priority lifts um, for throwers? High school or college, or both? Why don't you do high school first? I think for high school kids, they're so tight because they're sitting all day. It's important that they do a lot of mobility. So I, I think having them, you know, people are going to think I'm nuts, but having them snatch, pause in the hole in a snatch, having them do, you know, where they do overhead squats or they do uh, tall snatches, I think are really good to teach them long uh, double support position and then a good mobile overhead position. Uh, but mainly, you know, power snatches and snatches in the hole. Uh, some cleans, because they're going to have decent clean capability just from either playing football or whatever. They've probably been exposed to the cleans a little bit. Um, and then I actually would prefer single leg squats over front squats or back squats. Because, again, they, they sit all day. So their hamstrings get super tight, and then their glutes are inactive, and then their lower back loses any mobility as well. So when they're doing the single leg work, that really opens up the whole hip region. And, and I think that that, especially if you've got gliders, that can really lead to, to good transfer in the circle. But same with the, you know, the center position when the right ground's in the middle and the spin, and they're strong on one leg, and they're a little more active, and their, their hips are a little more open and more loose – from those single leg squats, you can really get them to, to hit decent positions. Um, so if I would pick like, you know, three movements, I'd say snatch, single leg squat, and then if three movements for the lower body, snatch, single leg squats, and uh, like a back extension or a glute ham or a reverse hyper. Now some people, if they can't teach a snatch and they don't have the single leg stuff, I would say do a power clean. And then do um, a high bar back squat with light weight, trying to get as deep as they can to, to, to improve their mobility um, and their, improve their core stability. And then again, uh, a trunk exercise like glute ham or, or reverse hyper or back extension. Um, and then upper body wise, just bench press, push press, um, <clears throat> rowing a lot of rows so like a chest row or a one-arm row or a t-bar row or a seated row and then some thoracic movement so like a miracle grow what we call it's sort of like a dumbbell pullover with a with a flexion of the elbow that can really open up the thoracic spine on a lot of on a lot of tight throwers so i i always like using miracle grows for that reason is it really wakes up the upper back um you know, that would be my top three for the upper body. For, and for both men and women, I would use those. And, and the other thing is with Miracle Grows is it targets your lats, your triceps, your, your gut, and it's lengthening, uh, it's opening up that upper back. So it really is a good movement, a really good accessory movement that if you pair it with like simple movements for high school kids is clap push-ups. You can get a clap, kids to clap push-up 
for 50 reps a day and their bench will go up 50 pounds and it's it's simple and it's really productive it's it's good for uh force force production so honestly i'd keep the same exact movements at the elite level um and then just throw in a couple things with special strength at the elite level at the at the collegiate level mm-hmm. what kind of special strength exercises um, I really like the shot swing. I, I wish we had ours set up in here. I wish, I think that's on you, Trevor. You got to figure that out. <laughs> uh, I, I really did like the shot swing a lot because it's easy to do and there's a stretch shortening cycle. Um, I think it's awesome. Uh, I would just say, and it's, again, it's easy and it's, and it, and it's easy on the coach. It's simple. And, and what's funny is that it's a little bit easier of an exercise, but you can still get a lot out of it and you can feel a lot out of it. So I, I would say a shot swing. And even though I really like dumbbell throws, I really, really like dumbbell throws a lot. My favorite special strength movement has always been a standing flat discus throw. Um, so like you stand upright and you hold that discus super, super flat and level with the shoulders and you rotate very level and flat because it's got – it's such a fast movement. It can really get, you can really get good speed through your gut and that right shoulder. Uh, and it, it actually carries over really well to the shot put. So, um, the shot swing. And then, and the thing is too, is that you could have the shot swing being pretty heavy loaded, uh, movement. And then the, the side discus throw would be a lighter special strength. So you could really pair them pretty well. All right. Um, so next I wanted to kind of touch on laying out like a year, like a yearly plan. Um, now I know you could, you could probably, you could probably make a whole nother podcast on this yeah. and try not to talk for more than 10 minutes. Okay. <laughs> but what are your thoughts on conditioning for throwers? Uh, that's stupid. <laughs> that's my thought. <laughs> Why? Um, I, I just don't think it's effective. I, I think it's, it's not productive for technical improvement. Um, what was that one saying you said the other day? It was like you're getting in shape to get in shape. It's like it, right? It's just it's not effective. You're it's training, it's training one. It's training one energy system so it, that when you start so to you throw, you have to back. train. Yeah, you have to change it back to another energy system, and that's the whole purpose here. Is it's like there is the GPP on how we view it in the U.S. is completely foreign to how other throws coaches view it. Like Doctor B's GPP when I moved up there was. Okay, when you take a throw, you had to pick up the shot and you had to throw it back. That's what we did for the first four or five weeks. So it was like I'd take a throw and then I'd throw it back from like a little shuffle. I'd take a throw and then I'd shuffle it back. That's GPP. And, that, and that's, that's what we would do. We, and we would take 60 throws at, uh, with the dumbbell at like 60 to 70% or we'd throw a shot put for height at like 60 to 70% just to get into shape of throwing because it's a, it's a shorter – movement it's what two seconds and you can't use you know you will never fully recruit all your maximum strength in that short period of time and you're certainly never going to tap into any aerobic capability so why these guys are running more than 30 meters like if you want to go run fine you can do plyos fine i like plyos you want to do run run sprints fine but you shouldn't be running more than 30 or 40 meters and it's it's just it's mind-boggling to me that these people that are making good money are still you know, pushing these guys to do like, like one of my collegiate throwers online, he's doing seven rep power cleans. Why? That's just ridiculous. It's a, it's a completely different energy system. We need to stay within the energy system 
and then stay within moving, you know, moving in accordance with how the actual movement is. So rotational strength and, and explosive strength and force development and all that. So it's sort of like, that would be my GPP, not, not conditioning, not going out. The, the biggest thing too, is you see, you know, we go out and we run all the, we have these guys, you know, I used to run 400s and 800s in the fall. And then we get bad shin splints. I'd have lower back pain because I was 290 and I was heavy. And then my hamstrings would always get tight, really, really tight. And then when I'd be squatting, I'd be like squatting forward with everything because of how tight my hamstrings were, but I would, I would squat forward because it, for some reason it actually felt better on my back to do that. So you just, you end up ruining motor patterns in the strength movements because of this ridiculous conditioning you're doing. Um, and if somebody could prove to me scientifically, don't just say, Hey, you know, my guy's getting better shape. Well, what does better shape mean? The best way to get in better shape if they're fat is have them eat better in the fall and have them take a lot of throws and have them lift a little bit. Maybe they lift a little bit more high reps, but like, that's it. Like they, they don't need to do uh, tons and tons of, of cardio. That's, that's just absurd. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, a lot of, so talk about a little bit how, and if you're, you're, if you have one, how your periodization scheme works. Like I know kind of the general thing out there is what your like preparation, pre-competition and like competition phases. Yeah. I know like a lot have like, I don't they use do that. everything like, like five sets of 10 or five sets of right. eight and everything's like that. And then the next program, and it goes right, down yeah, to like yeah. four to six reps, maybe yeah. like, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I would, I would, um, I would say my periodization scheme is closer to undulating periodization, but I call it parabolic periodization. Um, so think of a parabola on a graph. And I'm going public with this, so if anybody steals this, I'm going to hurt you. Um, but it's sort of like the the volume and the intensity in the weight room and in the circle sort of cross paths. And like when volume's high in one program, the intensity will be low, but the next program they'll sort of meet in the middle, and then the next program they'll switch where the the intensity will be high, but the volume's low. And and the goal is that basically you figure out what implements work best for that athlete based off of past um, programs what loading scheme high volume low uh, low volume or high intensity low intensity or somewhere in the middle works best for that athlete and then you try and figure out what exercises work best for them so um, do shorter range of motion movements work better so they're moving faster or do longer range of motion movements work better um, so I think it it really just it depends on on the individual and where you know what my programming would, would really be dependent upon the individual and where they respond best to specific types of training so say for a coach who has like you know a big team of high schoolers or, or college throwers like how how would you suggest to kind of set up their programming throughout the year cut for a college team yeah or Dude. or anyone who can't you know it's a could be a little bit more difficult to go on each individual basis and especially if you're just starting out and don't have that experience i think on a, i think for a, a collegiate team it's tough because wait are we talking high school or college 
Let's talk about college. Yeah, high school, I don't think you can really periodize. College, it's tough because you've got to factor in conferences and then outdoors, regionals or first round, whatever they call them now, and then um, NCAAs. So I think, um, let's say they get there in the fall and I would have them start throwing that first week of practice and I'd try and analyze where they're, what they've done over the summer. Did they actually throw? What are, the, what are the technical problems? And we'd analyze all their technique issues and then we'd, I'd, set, I'd write down a priority list for each athlete and try and go over everything. But then I would immediately throw them into a little high volume program um, that would have a fair amount of throws, a little bit of special strength, and then a moderate uh, volume base as far as uh, lifting is concerned. And then I'd do that for four to six weeks and then shift it where the lifting would become a little bit more intense, not too intense, but it's like 75 to 85% lifts, um, and see how they react in the circle, how their throws change based off of the the varied intensity and then what i would really harp on is that that entire fall would be to try and figure out the way i'm going to peak them in the spring so you've really got to communicate to them because this is a problem with you're using a, a model of periodization in in the collegiate level is that kids can ruin it because they're they're drinking so much so you know, if they go out and they party two nights a week, like they could completely ruin how you want to set up their peak. And you think you're getting good feedback, but you're really not. And if you're not understanding what they're, how they're sleeping, and you know, college kids will be like, oh, well, I had all this schoolwork and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And, and it's like, dude, you're in college. Your life's not that difficult. Like you need to be a little bit more mature and, and manage your time a little bit better. Um, and I wish I had a coach that would have yelled at me a little bit more when I was in college. But anyway, going back to it, I would try and base everything around – uh, peaking for that first round, um, you know, indoors, I think it'd be a little bit easier where you could sort of have like a deload week, the week of conference, but the real peak is set up for NCAAs. Um, and then for, for outdoors, I, I would train through pretty much everything until you get to conference. And again, it would depend upon the, the level of the athlete, but you just try and figure out how's how's the athlete respond to volume, how do they respond to intensity, how do they respond to heavy implements, how do they respond to light implements, and then factor in um, those those results that you've learned from the fall and set up their peak based around those results from the fall. And some of your athletes might have to peak at first round, and some of those athletes might be able to get through first round without a peak, you know, and, or some of those athletes might have to peak at conference just to make first round, but that's, that timing has to be based upon what you did, um, what that work was, where the work was done in the fall. And that's where I go. I have that problem with, with everybody doing all this GPP stuff is that when they do the GPP work in the fall, they're wasting six to eight weeks out of a 16 week semester. Like, you just lost half of your time to get data from the athlete because you're doing stupid stuff. So that ruins any chance that you have to set up a, a really true knowledge or any to, to gain the information that you need from the individual. Um, so that's, that's, I mean, I don't know if that even answers your question, Trevor. Yeah, no, I think that does. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
Would, so the last question I have for you then is if you would say the three biggest mistakes you see coaches, throws coaches making. College? Yeah, let's go college. I think that, that, that the first mistake they make is is doing conditioning. But in that, I would lump in that they, they don't do a good job of teaching them how to eat properly. Um, and they don't do a good job of harping on them to not drink heavily. So I would lump those three together. Yeah. Um, the next thing would just be a, the technical side. I, I don't really think a lot of these coaches have a technical model. I don't think that they have a an idea in their head of what they're looking at and what they want to see from the individual or why and why they they have that idea. So that's another thing is just, you know, what's the technical model and, and is it scientifically backed and does it make sense from a biomechanic standpoint? Um, and then, I mean, the, the weightlifting as well is just pretty, pretty poor that I see. Um, you know, some schools do a really good job. I think Penn State's starting to do a pretty good job. You know, Morgan's pretty strong. He's up there now. He's lifting heavy. And some people might think it's bad to lift heavy, but I think he's doing well with the training system he's in. But I see some of the the the, the technical models that they're using in the weight room, and they're not effective. And that those inefficient movements will carry over into the throws. Um I, I would say those those three things. Okay. I'm sure there's other things I could come up with, but I, those would be the three things I would harp on. Do you think, so with, with lifting, let's say, is there any, like, I know just general lifting isn't quite up to, you know, standard, but is there anything specifically within, like, strength programs that you would say, like, is kind of the biggest mistake? I think training, like, west side barbells the biggest mistake. I see a lot of these guys doing it, and then... They have really bad knee problems. They have bad back pain. They have hip problems, and they have shoulder issues. And it's like, well, you can't move. Like you, you become immobile. You know, weightlifting, or if you take a thrower, they move like a weightlifter. They've got to be snappy. They've got to be fast. They've got to develop force really fast. Okay, so weightlifting can carry over really, really well to that. Um, take a throw or take a powerlifter, a guy from West Side Barbell a power lifter and you get him in a, in a, into a shot circle and you put that shot in his neck and he'll barely be able to, to, to retract his scap and put the shot in his neck, let alone throw it with any type of, you know, decent force production. Now you take, and I can, I can tell you this as an example, Norik Vardanian, one of the best weightlifters that the U S has had, came to my gym and he threw a 16 pound shot, like, 47 feet from a little shuffle. But why? Because he's super explosive because he can jerk 220 kilos because he could snatch 173 kilos or 172 kilos. Like that's why he could do it. Like, cause he had really good pop. He had never touched a shot before in his entire life, but he knew how to accelerate and implement. And these guys that are trained in powerlifting, they're, Oh, well, we, we accelerate through bands and chains through accommodating resistance. And I'm not saying that powerlifting is bad. I'm not saying that accommodating resistance is poor. Those things are great tools of training. But when that's your, that's the foundation of your training system, it leads to overuse issues in the back, the hips, the knees and shoulders. And, and if you can teach somebody, you know, you can use a, 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 
a weightlifting movement um, to teach that force production and to teach the acceleration and to teach mobility, the transfer of training is much higher and it, and it, and it transfers into the circle. And I, I like to, I always use Alex Lee and Norik Vardanian as a good example. Norik never touched a shot and he threw damn near 15 meters from, from a little shuffle and he had zero experience in the sport. So, um, and he's not even that big, you know, he walks around at 215 pounds. So to me, I already, I had already made that decision in my mind, but when I saw it, I was like, okay, that sort of cements everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all the questions I have. Um, I think those are some really good answers that I hope, you know, new throws coaches can kind of, kind of develop their program, um, from a lot of this stuff and like figure out, you know, every, everyone's going to do things a little bit differently, but hopefully they can kind of pick and choose, um, what, what will work for them and their programs, but. Absolutely. I think that was very productive. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you. At this time, we want to give a big thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Dane's Platform. Remember to look out for our next episode and check out our sponsors, Earthfed Muscle, The Acceleration Diet, and Holistic Encapsulations. Peace.